Hey y'all, welcome to the Wheat Society podcast. Uh, we're here to talk about the industry uh, from the legacy market all the way to today with Prop 64. And I'd like to start off by kind of diving into our experience in cannabis and, and what ultimately got you into the cannabis space. Yeah, man, thank you. Um, so my history with cannabis has been, uh, I was a late bloomer. I didn't really smoke until I was like 18, 19. I, I was a good straight straight edge kid and I, I was taught that uh, the drugs are bad and all that jazz, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I did try, it was just very experimental, kind of fun, didn't really feel much to begin with, but um, I always thought there was something there because I had a hard time falling asleep. So I was like hearing word of like this evolving medical market for what it was for the 215 era. Uh, but I was still very apprehensive because I was figured I would have a, a nine to five job or something that would require me to get drug tested or something, yeah. right? So uh, I avoided it until I started more of my entrepreneurial endeavors. But that's when I got in and realized that there there was something there. I did like some of the, the more holistic components as to what the collective model kind of represented. Uh, and then as I got more and more into it, I realized that there's... Plenty of potential, right? Because there, I mean, that was back when people were actually making more money in the scene. Yeah. Uh, but there was a lot of people that weren't necessarily thinking about this at scale and what this meant at scale, and like thinking about what they were doing for marketing beyond just weed maps. Uh, so I had a really interesting experience where I was trying to come in and, and make these suggestions and, and take some of the more like traditional digital marketing tactics that I was experiencing or using on my own and trying to like shop it to some of these um, these clubs that I had relationships with. And I was just kind of running into brick wall after brick wall where people were just like, nah, we don't really need it. We did, we're not really thinking along those lines. Um, but yeah, I mean, the 215 era was a really interesting time because that was also the first time that I ever legally sold weed too. So selling to a club for the first time was an interesting experience. It was like, oh man, this is some decent outdoor that I didn't even have to think about, but getting 800 bucks for a pound was like incredible, right? Uh, So yeah, I mean, I I could probably like dive into more of these like facets of what the, the history was for me, but I know your experience today. We've been friends for a few years now, mm-hmm. uh, but I would love to see like what was your 215 experience? Like what was your legacy market experience that also kind of brought you to today? I didn't really start smoking until I was like 14 or 15 years old and mm-hmm. smoked with my friends for the first time and then made that connection that the smell of them lighting the weed on the pop can, that smell was actually what I was smelling around the house. And I was like, oh shit, this is what's going on here. Right. And then that evolved into later in high school trying to make money by flipping dime bags to the friends and ounces. Um, but I ultimately, I kind of, I fell off of it as well. Like. I just got tired of it by junior year of high school and I knew I wanted to join the military. So I completely got out of it, joined the military at 17 and didn't even think about weed until I came back home and I was going to school in Texas. Mm. Um, And some homies from here in California hit me up. That was 2016, 2017. And they they knew I was big into starting businesses. So they wanted me to come over and start helping them plan. Mm. Um, So I moved back here to California and I started cutting my teeth in in a, a black market lab uh, making distillate and filling pens and that's where I started at and then from there I started making business plans and kind of trying to go more on the on the legal side of it because at that time now 2000 that was beginning in 2018 through June of 2018 where 
that Prop 64 really came into place and investors were starting to come to the table. So did you kind of have a sense of what was coming and so you were trying to push to prep for more of that legal market? Well, I think everybody in my group was just tired of, of looking over their shoulders and, and having to worry about things. So the, the idea or the promise of Prop 64 and what it was supposed to be sounded really great. Right. And that's what we wanted to go for. Um, so I ended up in the Prop 64 market, I ended up diving into doing a lot more financial due diligence mm -hmm. and operational due diligence for like single family offices and other people with money that wanted to buy companies. Mm -hmm. And I saw that there was this huge breakdown between the trap and the, and the street language versus the people in the boardroom trying to invest money into them. Right. And that's where I really saw that I could help a lot of people kind of be the translator between those two. And that's how I really got my start was we did three or four different deals for, for type seven or type six manufacturing labs that or tried to do deals at least. Not all yeah. of them went through. Right. Um, but yeah, that's where I started with going from the legacy to the recreational market. And then from there I went and took over as general manager for a micro business in the East Bay mm -hmm. um, that had indoor cultivation, distribution, storefront retail and non-storefront retail. And that was my first time really being directly in it and, and calling the shots and moving things forward. And we did great. That was luckily that was the beginning of 2020 for that one. So COVID came and I was able to open up the sales for that company so they could really pick up on that huge boom. Right. We went from less than less than 70K a month in sales to over a quarter million a month in sales and expanded our service area. It was it was killing it. Um, and that's ultimately what led me to my next next part of the journey is where I saw this huge disconnect between brands and consumers yep. because you have two middlemen between them. You have the retailer and you have the distributor, right? So there's markups along the way, there's taxes added in along the way, and that voice from that, that producer is definitely not getting the consumer. Right. And I could feel that when I was directly in the dispensary helping, helping people buy their products is they were just really clueless about weed. They wanted to know and they wanted to know things about the specific brands they wanted to purchase, but there was nowhere for it. Right. And I see that's where we're, we're kind of stuck right now here with Prop 64 and the way the legal market is, is everything just went down the normal distribution path like we see for chips and cookies or alcohol. And now we're struggling with the prices of weed and it being at this simple commodity pricing mm -hmm. instead of being specialty or being more niche or, or people being able to understand the value. Like with wine, you have a two buck chuck or you could have a thousand dollar bottle of wine right. and there's a market that'll pay for that all day. And I feel like that's where weed needs to head. Right. I'm not sure if that's where it's heading right now, but I feel like for a sustainable and a strong market, that's where everybody needs to go. Yeah. I wholeheartedly agree. I've always looked at where the market was at from the context of what I knew in the medical market and thought that there's something missing because you can have these really cool marketable names for these strains and it's just like everything is a name but there's no real backing to like tell you why this is any different than something in the jar literally right next to it, right? Like a bud tender could try their best to describe some of these notes or, or some of these things like Terps was never really something that I had ever heard in that legacy market. It was just like, hey, I kind of want to sleep or I, I want to be up or I'm going to a party or whatever. And you're just trusting this bud tender in front of you yeah. to have your best interest. And most, I mean, most of the time it worked, you know, like I, I'm not trying to say like 
that we've jumped into this incredible era of, of more information and therefore better product. But I do think that there, there's a, a big disconnect from what you were saying about the supply chain being kind of an inhibiting factor from people getting access to some of these things. But also just from my perspective as like a marketing branding kind of brain, um, there, there was so much people, there was so much that I was seeing of people that were just purely operating mm-hmm. and I get it. Like you gotta, you gotta pay the bills. You gotta worry about looking over your shoulder. There was a lot, uh, that you needed to think about. So me coming along like fresh young kid that has all these ideas, uh, they, they weren't ready for it. They had no time to think about it because all it was, was like, are we going to get raided? Is something going to come along and shut this down? Like there was a lot more going on that they needed to be worried about. But it always stood out to me that there was some fire that would be on that shelf that was just coming into a bag and I knew nothing other than the strain and maybe there was some testing. So I had a, had a decent idea of what the percentage was, but that, the, the thing that did stand out to me during that time was there was plenty of those same operators that I'm talking about because you know I'd bounce around to dispensary to dispensary like every other consumer does, exactly. right? There was pockets of the industry that really touched like my soul in the sense of really giving a fuck and wanting people to see this as medicine and having this like almost sacred relationship for what that plant was that I think still still does exist in, in small pockets. And uh, I, I'm, I, I'm basically saying, like I'm piggybacking off what you said uh, about <clears throat> really wanting to see more love for the plant. And I think that that comes with a more educated consumer and people that want to understand the plant beyond just THC and that being the like one metric when there, there's plenty more and then to go even deeper past just what's on a COA, to understand the brand, understand the growing practices or just the, the amount of love that they put in that product, it makes a difference. It makes it makes such a difference. I mean, you can taste it, right? Like a, a good, a good. you open something and you smell it and you oh, it just gives you that tingle, right? And then you crack that open and you smoke it and oh, it's, it's bliss, right? Yeah, I agree with what you're saying. Is like with Prop 64 coming around, and all these rules and regulations coming into place, we had this legacy market of people that had no rules, no regulation. They were running dispensaries and getting product out to people, right? Right. But like you're saying, it was was stuck at that level of price point and THC. And now we all know that there's so much more to the entourage effect of weed. And I, that's, I think that's one of the benefits that have, has came from Prop 64. As much as I'll talk down about it, there's yeah. also, there's positives to it, sure. right? Sa- safer testing, being able to get those COAs so you can understand the terpene profiles of the weed you're, you're consuming. Um, but ultimately, a lot of those people that gave up the black market and their way of life to try and come into the legal market to actually be good by mm-hmm. society standards and be there, ended up choking themselves out with rules, regulations, timelines, and it, it's just a, a bloodbath that I, I think is almost manufactured. I, I don't think that the regulation was necessarily written in a way that was welcoming and wanting to see these legacy operators. These same people that are, I would compare to like the bootleggers of yesteryear uh, are the same people that they almost want to make an example of. There are, it's almost inhibiting that transition from mm-hmm. trap to what this legal market represents. So I have a ton of empathy for the people that 
try and do try and the people that are really giving it. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I think that the, the legacy market as we call it, I think that it's kind of a necessary evil based on what society would say about it. But these are some of the same people that were trying to push this as medicine. And sure, there was plenty of people that were just after a dollar and I'm not here to argue what's right or wrong in that. But I think we only have what we have today because people were willing to push that line and were willing exactly. to keep pushing this forward and say, no, this is a fucking flower. And yeah. we're treating this as like a schedule one substance. It's fucking insane to me. I totally agree. And that's honestly kind of why I have so much faith in this industry mm -hmm. is hundreds of years of prohibition, billions of dollars spent to try and destroy us. And we're still standing here today right. because of each other. Right. 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 And like the government, they don't change their playbook. If you think back 1937, the marijuana tax act, they specifically made it with tax, not make money sense for people to trade hemp or produce the oil or any of the textiles, any of that from it. Right. And effectively through tax killed out the industry. Right. And where did they start right away with a huge excise tax that makes it hard for everybody? Right and it makes it so there's a giant room for the black market to still be there yep. and they know that yep. yeah so it's the the government's game hasn't changed but we as as a society can change and i think where we are today with technology and everything else i think there's a a, a couple good paths that this industry could go up down and really survive and not get killed out or everybody drown and then big tobacco and big alcohol come in and buy everything up right. i think if we if we did just like we did before during prohibition and came together as a society and decided to be strong together that there is a real opportunity for a craft market to emerge and, and really flourish and, and lead other industries Absolutely. by example. Let's dive into some of your experience on the digital marketing front in cannabis sure. and just like sure. the amount of headaches sure. that come with it. Yeah, I luckily love problem solving. I love it my brain just thrives on trying to figure out what that creative solution is to get from a to b and in the traditional digital sense when it comes to what we do like yeah we could talk funnels ROAS, drop any sort of lingo that you want to talk to a to b for conversion on something online right but when it comes to cannabis not the same in any way shape or form we're looking for these holes and then trying to exploit it and then getting shut down and i mean even these platforms that are like essentially leading culture right like i look at instagram now and TikTok and, and some of these platforms that are shaping culture algorithmically but shaping culture in a lot of ways are benefiting from people producing this content and cannabis as a whole but they're also quick to shut an account down. There's not like someone you could pick up a phone and be like, hey, I just invested all this time, money, and effort into building a real digital connection with people and then just evaporates overnight. So I am, I wish I had like, to, I wish I could confidently say like, yo, we have it all figured out. Far from it. Because yeah. we're- It we're changes every day. It changes every day and the landscape changes all the time. And while I'm grateful for that mental tax that I get to try to like figure out to jump through some of these hoops or figure is there uh, a way that we can 
gain attention by leveraging non-cannabis touching assets and how do we pursue that and use some of the more traditional marketing avenues that we would otherwise have for non-cannabis touching product and trying to trying to help these brands create a voice in a way that it's it's sustainable because while the flashy cool content that goes up on these same platforms that we're talking about is is amazing i think that it's very short-sighted and as someone that like immediately jumps three to five years in the future on almost every conversation that i have i'm always thinking about what does that look like at scale and what does it look like for the longevity of what this brand is and so i'm having a lot of conversations with people about seo and why that's why that's important and why they should be owning their keywords and why they should be trying to produce more content and what that looks like from an evergreen content and not just the quick consumable content that we're used to on a feed. Yeah, and that's uh, a tough sell, right? It's super tough. Because Google won't even index your pages for a cannabis website right now, right? right? Or right. like you're saying, Instagram will delete you so that, that five racks you threw into making a dope video to, sell, to really push your brand, it's gonna get deleted off there today anyway, so right. why invest the money? Right. And it makes this, this killer like scenario where we're trying to live in this e-commerce marketplace right? right like social media is social media marketing has pushed and made it so easy for people to be able to start businesses find their customers and make sales happen and make people happy but with cannabis it was completely cut out of it so you see us going through like receipt tape networks doing billboards all these like right we we've like we took a uh, a tarp and and tied it to the side of the van with like paint on it right to, to try to market yeah right like, it's just, I see that's where there's a lot of trouble and everybody had really high expectations for the cannabis industry, but there's limitations on being able to get information out, let oh, alone yeah. even actual products out is really what's holding us down. So many ways, so many ways. And then you look at it from the perspective of being on these platforms and seeing the people that are trapping thriving. Yeah. Right? Like, cool, your account's probably not getting looked at if you're sub 2,000 followers. I get uh, almost a follow almost pretty much every time I post cannabis-related content. I'm getting followers from people that are like selling black, selling black market weed. And again, I know I commented on that earlier, like there, there's space for it currently. I would like to see it get to a point that there's more, like we're talking about these craft cannabis operators that have been able to survive past the legacy and into today's market. But it's so frustrating for me in this, in the context of where I'm at and wanting to really help these brands in as many ways as I can to see like these same platforms aren't doing the due diligence to, to stop them, but the people that are really going out of their way to put their license number on there, try to jump through all these ethereal hoops that they think are helping. Content that has value to it. Right, right to really engage people, which is what these platforms want. They're the ones that are, are paying for it in the long run. It's just, it's disheartening and super frustrating, but it's an uphill battle. It's an uphill battle that I am absolutely down to fight and I enjoy this fight because I believe in what it's about. Uh, I, I, I have a, I'm grateful for the team because it allows me to like not have to breathe so hard and heavy after I've been running at this stuff for so long. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, man, it's, it's, a really interesting space that we're in and I'm fascinated to see where it goes. So there's a question that I, I, I want to ask everyone that I get on this podcast and that is if there was one specific thing that you would change about this industry or about the regulations, what would it and why do you think it's the number one thing that needs to be changed? 
I would say, man, it's hard to pick one now that I'm thinking about it, but I think it just kind of going back to what really makes me feel fueled is making space for more small companies to actually thrive and creating a pathway for more legacy operators to join in on this because the leg the way that the the this legislation was produced written and, and came to life it, you can look at all of these things as really inhibiting for any sort of growth, especially for a smaller company. Mm -hmm. So this small farm may have been producing for thousands of patients, and that's not really on the register when it comes to needing to make enough money to cover all of the headache, really, essentially, that they have to go through. So I would say I would change the, I would change the regulations as they exist to have a path forward for some of these small companies to either grow enough to where they can meet some of these requirements that maybe some of these larger, more well-funded brands can already produce at. Or if they did want to stay at this level and that's where they want to stay forever, they don't want to expand, that's not in their path, that they can still make a decent living and honestly thrive because this is not, this in, like people come into this with this expectation like, oh, the green rush and this and that. And once you actually hear a lot of these operator stories, you realize like the money isn't as a grind as for everyone. Yeah, and, and it's, it's unfortunate. That's why I really pride myself on not having a green price for what we do is because I think that more people are suffering because of just how much is coming out of their pockets just day in and day out for all of that. Yeah, no, that's very real. I definitely experienced that with all kinds of technology platforms or you know, people trying to offer services like bookkeeping, things like that. As soon as they heard cannabis, their prices doubled, yep. like all kinds of stuff like that. I saw so many like different branding and marketing agencies. I mean, still to, to today, like suddenly everyone's a uh, either a cannabis influencer or they're now this insightful expert that are that's leading the way and disrupting cannabis. I swear to God, there's like a new marketing agency that pops up every week. Yeah, and then they find out that Google's not going to index their pages right. and, and they're gone by that billing period. Right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. No, I totally agree with you, and you pointed it out perfectly in that, that response and almost tying it back to talking about those little operators on Instagram that are, that are selling black market weed, right, is there's such a barrier to entry to this market that it, it knocked out half of the people from the black market that we wanted to come here anyways. Right. That were, and yeah, and that's the big issue is, is there's a certain level of buy-in that is only afforded by the effluent. Yep. And we, a lot of us can't afford that, can't do that. And that's why I had to end up going and, and taking a general manager job instead of just running my own. I couldn't afford to go lock down a property for a year to possibly two years and pay rent on that just while I'm waiting to get my paperwork processed right. and get my license. Right. That's where a lot of people really lost their skin is like, I'm gonna lock down a property right now because I have to have it, right. which you needed to have it to actually fill out the paperwork properly. Yeah. Makes sense. But then you had to wait for the city to decide whether they wanted to, to even give you your permits, right? There's city and state level um, just discretionary licensing that ended up hurting and bankrupting a lot of people that were from the black market or were from the legacy market, 215. And it's a shame to see them die that way. Yeah, there's. I just think to how many good stories there were from people that either grew fire-ass weed for the sake of just flexing, which I have love for, yeah. right? 
And then there's so many stories that I'm sure have been lost along the way of people that were carrying the 215 market because they cared about patients and serving people. And how many people are just fell by the wayside and were swept away in the process of where we are today? Another question I'd like to ask you since you're such a a digital marketing stud here is, is what can brands do right now to really make the difference or, or can they be doing right now that's going to be scalable and going to provide them results? Uh, it's the unscalable. It's, it's, the, it's the due diligence of really getting to know who your customer is. Mm-hmm. So much focus goes into making that conversion and quick, quick, quick. Everything is so sales oriented and I get it. Like, we're in an industry that you have to make that buck because you have to pay somebody that dollar, almost 60% of it or whatever, as soon as you make it. I get it. But what will always stand out to me is those, those interactions, those experiences. And yeah, you can have a nice experience from great packaging. Sure, I don't discredit that. There's value to all of that. But I think more brands are not understanding the human element that goes into brand building and really trying to create more of those actual interactions with people. And it's not scalable because it takes work, it takes time. You have to really invest into people like that. But because this industry is so incredibly fickle and consumers are chasing, they're chasing, they're chasing, if you can capture some that then end up being like your loudest vocal supporters, that's the win. But I also understand those people are few and far between for the space, but you should be trying to nurture more of those people into your tribe. And I think more brands should be trying to build a tribe. And again, that's not necessarily scalable. And I know that. So I also know like it's not always practical, but if you could invest that time and really create more of these connections in a digital physical landscape, however you have to make that work, um, I think that that's what more brands could and should be doing. I completely agree. It's just adding another brick to the wall every time, right? right. And eventually you'll have that whole wall built. Right. And I mean, like some people are doing it through demos, right? Mm-hmm. But not to hate on the demos. If you're doing demos, I love you. Keep doing your thing. But it's 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 limited, it's limited. and it's usually like almost discrediting a brand because you're having to like almost give all this stuff away, or you're putting a hot chick in a shirt and they're standing in front of weed and they know nothing about your product and that shit worked for alcohol and yes sex sells and i'm not here to discredit that or talk shit on on anyone that has a a pretty face and a great body like cool do that make your money i'm not not here to say that that's terrible but a consumer is going to be able to tell the difference between someone that really gives a fuck about their product an educated consumer, I should say. Let me, let me bring that back a little bit. An educated consumer is going to be able to tell the difference between someone that cares about what they're producing as an art versus someone that's producing something for pure profit. Yeah, I feel like it, it shines through with a lot of these brands and what we see on the shelves today. Yep. And it, it's, it's almost a shame that there isn't more education for consumers so they can, they can see it for themselves too. Right. Because there's a lot of mids, which mids need love too. Mids right? move, man. <laughs> mids mids move. move. I've been saying that <laughs> since forever. Mids move. But yeah, I think that if there's a, a way that we can get the consumer more educated and get people understanding that, hey, this specific strain of weed that has these terpenes do better for me for this specific ailment or this specific reason that I'm using it, I feel like we're going to get a more educated and a more valued 
consumer base that's going to end up helping really separate the cream from from the rest of it yep. and set and bring us and this craft market to the top where we should be absolutely absolutely and to to segue to from one of the things that you were saying technology is going to lead that right mm -hmm. and giving someone access to information doesn't necessarily always mean it's consumable. So really trying to, to piggyback and tie the two together in a way that's like, okay, this is easy to consume and also has some sort of educational component, I think is probably how we start that ball and how we get it kind of moving a little bit. Uh, but I think that now I'm gonna put it back on you to say, that's kind of what you're doing with your platform, right? I know you and I have had a ton of different conversations about we ran the gamut of different ideas. Where are you heading? What, what are you doing to also keep that ball rolling? How are, how are you trying to bring a more educated consumer or more access to some of this information? Mm -hmm. Well, so let's, that's awesome. Let's go ahead and jump into that. So how we're starting out really is we see that, like we talked about earlier, social media will just block you, shadow ban you, delete your stuff, make it not worth it to really put that effort and, and time into making quality content that will make a more educated consumer. Mm -hmm. So what we're trying to do with the Weed Society platform is actually directly incentivize brands to do that legwork of educating their customers, right? Because it's not, it's not about one person standing at the top of the hill and being like, yo, this is the right way. This is, this is what you should know and this is what you shouldn't. It's gonna happen, like you said, like heart to heart at all those different levels. So with Weed Society, what we're trying to do is really motivate brands and even people that, that just have good experiences with weed and have knowledge, incentivize them to share that knowledge and, and put it into a digestible and enjoyable format mm. so that people can enjoy it at the same time that they're learning about weed, not feel like they're reading a textbook or they had right, to go, right, right. go search through a website and hit six links to be able to get to a certain place. Totally. Because being high is fun still, right? Yeah, exactly. You, know, you want to have a little fun. But instead, creating a community where those people that are taking that time to directly distill that information and make it absorbable get rewarded for it, mm. right? We see that in the creator economy today. You see it with Twitch, where people get tipped out every second just, just for being on the screen, right? right? Or you see it on YouTube that all those other industries, or anybody wants to make a YouTube channel, they can get monetized and make a living off of it. Sure. It's the number one small, growing small business right now, yep. right? But can't get monetized for cannabis content on YouTube. Right? You can't post this stuff on Instagram. Link, like LinkedIn lets you do cannabis. Luckily, that's really helped. I feel like a lot of the, the, the professional side of the legal industry has been able to use LinkedIn to, mm. to come together. And I think that's really great. But on all these other platforms that major, a majority of our consumers are on, mm -hmm. uh, just straight up say no to weed. Right. And so this is making this huge hole in this huge space where people can't make a living making cannabis content and helping mm. us all understand more. Mm. And so that's one of our main focuses at Weed Society is how do we take the current creator economy and the expectations that are there and how do we create a platform that takes it a step further and, and really helps cannabis content creators and brands make money off of cannabis content and off of educating consumers and bringing their tribes there to live with them there. Right. And that's the beauty of a lot of these new technologies that are coming out mm. is that it's really enabling communities to come together in a new way that we haven't seen with previous technology. Right. 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 
the truth here is, and, and that's in my job as building this app and, and creating this community, is making something that feels home to people and that they can navigate to and feel confident when they talk about it. Right. And so Weed Society in itself is just another application. It's just like Facebook or Instagram or Amazon's app. Right. There's no more shadow banning. There's no more me playing with the algorithm so you see only certain things. This is just going to be straight up what you like to see will be in there and it'll be your job to put it there. Interesting. I'm, I'm fascinated by it because I really believe that the, the creators and the today's creator economy are still getting pennies and, and pennies and peanuts in comparison to what they could and or should. What does that look like at scale for you? And then also what does that look like in timeline? For sure. So my thing here is like a social media platform Sure, it's a fancy name, it's something to get excited about because there's other ones that are billions of dollars, but really all a social media platform is, a, it's a dinner table, mm. right? And a dinner table is only, the dinner that you have is only as good as the people you bring to that table, Sure. right? And you could have the best food there if you wanted to, but if the, the chat is shit, then it's, you're going to walk away from it, right? right? And so where I see Weed Society at scale truly is, is a lot smaller than we see regular social media platforms right now. I feel like it's going to be a lot more of a homey place that it's specifically for, for people that are really down with weed. And it, because of that, I think that's going to be a real strength for it. I think we're going to have the opportunity to, to really come together and, and do events and do things that really bring the society together and help us build this weed society mm -hmm. to make it a, a sustainable and safe place and a happy place for everybody that wants to be a part of it. And what, do you, what about timeline? What do you think like the... So timeline wise, we already have our alpha live, right? There's weeds. If you go to app.weedsociety.com right now, you can sign up, make a profile and you, you can be on our alpha. Um, right now I'm in the development of our actual app that will be on the DSO blockchain. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and I'm, I'm bootstrapping it. I'm very, I'm mm -hmm. being very, very not scared, but very, very calculated when it comes to looking at raising capital. Right and taking other people's money because we've seen this happen so many times where a, a founder has a great idea or a great intention and then gets desperate and raises money from a bad person and then it ends up not all money is good money either tanking it or it ends up going in a way that takes advantage of the industry instead of actually helping it right. and that's that's why i'm i'm happy with with going slower i'm happy with programming it myself at first i, I know i'm going to have to scale up and, and get a team of devs and do all that but I'm going to do it from a place of control and not out of desperation. Right. And I think that that's very important for this industry is that we've already had so many big people come in and say they were going to help or a government say they're going to do something. Right. Big brother just keeps fucking everybody up. Right. And instead, it's, it's really important to me to build this from grassroots and, and to have the industry partake in it and also partake in the upside of it. Right. Like, my vision for this and where it's going to go is something that we haven't seen from a corporation yet in, in the United States or in the world. Um, really, I want to, like going back to that, that diner, dining, dining room table analogy, right? If you're at my table, I want you to eat. Right. It's not me sitting in the corner with a big plate of food and giving you out a couple peas. No, that food's in the middle and everybody's taking from it. Everybody and hates, and yeah. that culture, and, and that, that's something that was really, that was instilled in me in the military. It was like, yo, everybody's eating or I'm not going to eat. Like, 
it's not feast and famine for one and the other. It's we all can do this. We can all come together and share in this and come and make it a true home for the cannabis society or weed society. Yeah. Well, I think that's what creates a thriving market. I love it. Well, Todd, I'd like to thank you for your time. Thank you. And, and you guys, I'd like to thank you for taking the time out of your day to, to watch this and learn more about Weed Society and what we're going to do. Excited to see you guys in the future. He would like to thank me too. You're welcome. I'm not adding it. Although if you're watching it, obviously I did add it. So. Whoa,